All right, we're on lesson six in your notes. If you need a set of notes, Len and John have some. So get their attention. And as I say, we're on lesson six, and we'll start that in just a bit. Welcome, everyone. As we continue our series, the title of it is on the screen, From Self-Help to God's Help. Just a a few announcements, and then we'll uh, pick up on lesson six. This evening, we begin our Leadership Institute series for men. That is uh, something that we've been doing for years. We've had a couple of years now where we have not because we've uh, been running some other aspects of our men's ministry and didn't want to overschedule our guys. But we're starting the Leadership Institute up again tonight, 6 o'clock here. goes about an hour and a half, and we're going to meet each week when we are not meeting for our Sunday evening home groups, community groups. So we're, in, uh, we're on a break on the home groups right now. We've got several weeks for us to do that. Then we'll start up the home groups, and then we'll pick up uh, Leadership Institute again after that. So guys, any of you that would like to participate in that, I encourage you to. It's uh, focused on leadership in the church, but the principles that are taught there will help you with leadership really in any realm. And those that are leading ministries in our church or desire to lead in ministries in our church, this is something that is required for you. So uh, if you can make it, I'd encourage you to come. We need to know that you're coming, though, so register at the Information Center before you leave today. We have a, a notebook, a syllabus of material that we go through. We've, uh, we purchased those from a publishing company, and they cost $40. So the cost for it is $40. If you don't have the $40, that's... That's not a problem, but we just need to know how many guys are coming. So register for that. That starts tonight at 6 o'clock. And then the next two Wednesdays, we have the final two Wednesdays of the semester for our midweek program. And for the midweek program, we have kids program, teen program, and three adult classes to choose from. After these two weeks, we'll have the Christmas, New Year's holiday, and we'll start a new semester up then in in January. So that's, uh, let's see what else is coming up. The Ladies Fellowship is one week from Tuesday, December 10th. Uh, here, and that is a ladies' Christmas advent. There's a card advertising that that's out uh, on the information table. There's also a paragraph on that in, the, uh, in today's uh, program. And then two weeks from tonight, December the 15th, is our annual adult Christmas fellowship. And there's a long paragraph about what to bring for that, but one of the important items is a white elephant gift. So we always have a white elephant gift exchange, and each person brings a gift uh, and wraps it you don't put your name on it, and then we put that in the pile, and we have a good time with those. So there's some other things for you to bring, uh, beverage and food items. Look in the bulletin for that, but that's two weeks from, from tonight. All right, we'll get into the notes here in a bit. Uh, last week I told you one adventure that I had with uh, my China trip, uh, being in the Beijing airport for eight hours and deciding I, wanted to, deciding I wanted to buy a cup of coffee with the Chinese currency that my wife had given me to spend while I was there. Uh, from my last trip, she said, hey, you had this left over, here it is, you might as well spend it while you're there. And those of you that were here last week heard the story, it turned out that that wasn't Chinese currency, it was Israeli currency, and I was trying to give it to this poor gal at this Chinese uh, coffee shop in the Beijing airport. But the other thing that happened was, uh, if you were here first hour, you saw some of the slides and the fact that the, the brothers uh, uh, got a hotel room for me the night before I was to depart. And I was departing at 7.30 in the morning on a Friday. So Thursday evening, we stayed in a hotel in the town where the little airport is. And uh, then they uh, hailed a cab for me and actually rode with me over to the airport the next morning. I mean, that's how, the kind of care they were taking to make sure that I got on that, that flight. 
Now, that may mean they were really anxious to get rid of me as well, but, but they took that kind of care. So we spent Thursday night in this hotel, and the flight is leaving at 7.30. Now, I flew into this airport, and it is a small airport. It's a one-carousel airport. But they wanted to leave at 5 a.m. Now, we're 10 minutes from the airport. So this will be the only flight going out at 7.30. But this is going to be a 20-some-hour ordeal overall for me, so what's another hour and a half or whatever? So 5 a.m. They w- so we made arrangements for this Chinese brother to knock on my door at 5 a.m. and we'll leave. And he did, and we did. And he hailed a cab, and 10 minutes later, we were at the airport. So at 5.10 a.m., we are approaching the Yanji Airport. And it's dark at 5.10 a.m., and when we pull up to the airport, the thing that was confusing to me was it was still dark. I mean, very dark in this parking lot, very dark at this building, so much so that I'm squinting to see, one, where is the building? And the cab stops, and we get out, and we get my luggage out, and we start walking toward this, this building, the airport terminal. And it looks pitch black. And I'm thinking, this airport is not open. As we get a little bit closer, you can see the glow of just a few lights inside the thing. As we approach the doors, I'm certain that these things are going to be locked. But we come to these sliding doors, and we get there, and they, they open. And we go in, and there are three people in there. Three old Chinese women pushing dust mobs at 5.10 a.m. We're the only bodies in there for the next hour and a half until people start showing up. Some, some counter people start showing up, some security people start showing up, and, and all of that. So for an hour and a half, it's me and this Chinese brother who doesn't speak any English for an hour and a half in the, in, the Yanji, in the Yanji airport. So that's the way it goes when you're in some remote location in the northeast China. The airports, remember this if you ever go there, the airports don't open until about 6.30, okay? And this one, uh, this one was not open. But he stuck ar- stayed around, made sure that I got through security, waved goodbye to me, and you know, I was on my way. So uh, thankfully, that I was able to go on the trip, and I'm thankful for... Uh, uh, the profit of the trip, both for myself and for the brothers who were there as well. All right, lesson six says new identity and new potential. And this series is taken from a book that we have documented at the beginning of your notes called How People Change. And in that book and thus in these notes, there is a, um, there is a diagram that we have in your notes, but also we've had on the screen. Do we have that uh, diagram on the So this is on uh, all of the pages of your notes uh, just before each lesson. And it shows the formula that's being used throughout this series. And we have a total of nine lessons. The first one was an introductory lesson giving an overview of that change process. And then two lessons devoted to each of the four components of that, that chart. Let me just remind you what those are. But change happens from God's perspective this way. We live in the circumstances, the situations of life. That's what the heat is at the top and the middle. And those situations and circumstances are widely varied, but God sovereignly places us in our our situations. And it is in those situations that we are to carry out God's will, that we're to obey God. But because most often in our circumstances, especially difficult circumstances, in the heat of life, we don't react in a God-centered way. We react in a, in, a, in a man-centered way. 
Because of our sin, we uh, have inappropriate responses, unhelpful responses. And those cause the thorns in our lives. The fruit of those reactions, actions and reactions in the heat of life, result in the cactus you see on the, on the right there. But that actually has as its root our hearts. And that's why at the root of that, uh, bush with no fruit, tree with no fruit, you see a heart shape and you see a negative. It's a, that's a sinful heart that we bring to the heat of life, to the circumstances of life. And when we react with those sinful hearts, it creates then even worse circumstances for us and those in our circle of influence. So we spent two lessons each on those. We completed a look at the thorns, what we do and why we do what we do in response to our circumstances. But now today, we're going to begin two lessons on the bottom and the third component, and that is the cross. And the cross changes our hearts. Christ changes our hearts. He redeems what has gone wrong as a result of the fall and the sin that we have inherited as part of the human, sinful, fallen family. He redeems that. He changes that. We want to see today and next week how He does that. And then the two weeks after that show how that gives you a new heart, thus a different reaction to the heat of life, and thus different fruit. And so that's what that, uh, that's what that chart is about. And we are on the third component now today at the bottom the cross. And lesson six says new identity and new potential. And the question that we want to answer today, you see on that page, is in what specific ways are you failing to let the cross shape your situations and relationships? What would change in these areas if you lived in a more cross-centered way? So Paul Tripp, who was one of the co-authors of the book from which this material comes, he says something that I can relate to. He says he's the kind of person who doesn't like to read instructions. So when he gets a uh, product, he, doesn't, he tries to skip the instruction man- manual. I'll just put this thing together. And he gets about 30 minutes into it, and there are pieces that he doesn't know where they're supposed to go. And he's frustrated and he's angry. And now after wasting 30 or 45 minutes or 60 minutes, he finally resorts to the instruction manual. Well, I've been there many, many times. And so as a result of not uh, repairing to the instruction manual, it causes all kinds of frustration, not only for him, but for people that are around him. And he makes uh, a helpful point, and that is many of us tend to do the same thing when it comes to personal and interpersonal problems. We don't want to take the time to patiently walk through what's at the root of those problems. We want to get right to the end product, right to the solution. And the reason that we have taken four weeks to look at heat and to look at the thorns is to carefully show how bad the situation is for us in our personal and interpersonal relations. One, that will help us see that we need a radical solution to the problem. Now, I say radical because that really means root. And at the root of our problems is not the external circumstance, the heat, the root of the problems, is the way we act and react within those circumstances. So we need something that gets to the root. We need a radical change. But you wouldn't know your need for that radical change if we haven't taken the time to go through and identify just how difficult the the problem is. And one of the effects of taking the time to do that is, yes, we know that radical change is required, but also... 
It means we have a great appreciation for the work that Christ does in us because we know that that's the only hope we have. If you've been with us for these four weeks, you understand that there is no external solution to the problems we have. It's going to have to be an internal solution because the problem is ultimately an internal heart problem. And so it gives us a great appreciation then for what what Christ does. Our thorny responses are the fruit of issues that are rooted in the heart, as we've seen. So even though life is hard, it's not those hardships that cause us to respond the way we do. Our responses are shaped by the thoughts and motivations of our hearts. And if you care to, you might just jot down on your notes Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Hebrews 4.12. And Hebrews 4.12 talks about the Word of God, Scripture, being alive and 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 sharper than any double-edged sword, and it's able to distinguish between the thoughts and the motivations of the heart. That's what that, that verse says. And it is those thoughts and motivations of the heart that we bring to our situations that cause them to deteriorate. And we saw uh, last week that when our love for something in the creation, someone or something, is greater than our love for God, then that someone or something has become idolatrous to us. And it's a thorny then response to the circumstances we're in. So we saw, for the sake of those of you that haven't been with us, we can often want good things, but want those good things in an idolatrous way. You can come home from work and want peace and quiet. Peace and quiet is a good thing. But you can want it more than you want to glorify God. And how do you know that you want it more than to bring honor and glory to God? When you're willing to sin in order to get that good thing. When you're willing to sin in order to get some otherwise good thing, that thing has become idolatrous to you. And our hearts are veritable idol factories. And we create them out of anything or anyone is potentially an idol for us. And so now in this lesson, we want to consider the resources that we have in Christ in order to deal with those heart struggles. What is it that Jesus gives us that allows us to battle those subtle but powerful idols of our hearts? Why is it that the cross is the only place that we can go to truly have hope to handle these internal problems of the heart that we have? How will our lives change if we step out in Christ-centered hope? You might jot this passage down as well. 2 Corinthians 5.15. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Here's what it says. That Jesus came so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them. So we've looked at how it is that in small and large ways we live for ourselves and we bring our idolatrous hearts to our circumstances and that self-focused living shows up in those circumstances. But the Bible's telling us that Jesus came so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us. So, what resources do we have? And those resources are new identity, top of Lesson 6, and new potential. Now, how important is this whole idea of, of potential? Everybody lives out of a sense of what potential, what possibilities do I have in order to be successful at whatever endeavor I'm looking to undertake. So every uh, time a wife uh, and a husband have a, a baby, 
they see this potential in action, this quest for potential in action in that, in that baby. You know, we've had, been blessed with two girls. And I can remember when they were toddling, trying to learn to stand on their feet and to pull themselves up to the couch. And you can see in their eyes, they're thinking to themselves, can I do this? I want to do this, but can I do this? Do I have the potential to do it? And the amazing thing about babies is they're always pushing that potential. And you want them to do that because that's, uh, that's how they grow and that's how they discover the things that they are actually capable of doing. And adults uh, do the same thing. We do this throughout life. We're always measuring our potential. So when a boss or a coach or a teacher gives a new assignment inside yourself, you're assessing whether or not you have the ability to complete the task. Or if you go to Home Depot, you know, you're thinking to yourself, can I really do this, this thing? Now, some of you are magicians with that stuff. You know you can. Guys like me, I don't even make the trip. But if I did make the trip, I would be asking myself, one, why am I making this trip? Because I know I have no potential to actually get this thing done. But on more important matters, as you're expecting your, your first child, and uh, as you're expecting your first child, Billy and Madison, uh, you know, you're thinking, right? You're thinking about, how am I going to do with this? What kind of mom am I going to be? You're going to be a great mom, by the way. You're going to be a great dad. But you're thinking that. You know, and this is, wow, this is, this is huge. God's entrusting to me uh, a new life, a precious life. And how am I going to be able to, as the husband, help, help my wife in this endeavor and vice versa? And how are we going to be able to, to raise this child? You're assessing your, your potential. You pre- Prepare to ask your fiancé to, to be your wife, and you ask yourself if you have what it takes to be a good husband. And so we're doing that all the time. We're asking ourselves, do I have the potential to handle the next thing? And that's true in the heat of life, the stuff that we have to face. Life in general, with all its blessings and all of its difficulties, we're always assessing whether or not we have the potential to succeed. And so just ask yourself, how you do that. How do you assess whether or not you have the potential to succeed in the circumstances that God has placed you in? What leads you to say things like, I'm doomed to failure. There's no way I can pull this off. Or conversely, what leads you to say things like, I think I'm ready to do what I've been assigned to do. What is it that you use to measure the potential do you have? Do you say things, well, you know, I came from a good family. I've had good role models. I've got a good education. I have the talents necessary for the task. I've learned from my past experiences. I've had past successes, so they indicate that I'll probably be successful again. And from a Christian standpoint, all of those things are, are good. They're all, they're all fine because the truth is the Lord's been sovereign over all of those experiences and making you what you are. And, giving you the family that you had and the role models that you had. But hear this carefully. That standard of self-evaluation misses the core of your potential as a Christian. It's not your potential as a Christian is not found in all that stuff. As a matter of fact, all that stuff is not enough. And further, many didn't have all or some of that stuff the good family, the good education, the good role models. So what potential then does, does that person have to face the circumstances that they're in in a way that honors God and moves them forward in their Christian walk? 
So those are, those are good things. Those are valuable things. They are gifts from God. And, and some of us have some of those. Some of you may have all of those on your list that you can look back on and say, this is what gives me the potential that, that I have. And you can thank God for that. But it's not the way our potential is assessed from a biblical standpoint. How is it? What's well, on the sheet, lesson six. The scripture passage that's listed there, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, says this, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So the potential that we have, and that any person can have, even if they don't have all that other stuff on the list, the good education, the good family, the good role models, and all of that, even if you didn't have all of that stuff, the good news, the gospel is this. You, have, you can have the potential to live in a God-honoring way because, not because of what other people have done for you or done to you or what you have accomplished, but because of Christ who lives in you. The indwelling Christ is the one who gives you the potential to do what God has called you to do. And so here, the one who wrote this, this was written by, many of you know, a man named Paul, and he's not focusing on the fact that the cross enables me to be accepted by God. That's certainly true. Our acceptance by a holy God is only because Jesus on the cross paid the full penalty for our sin. And if that penalty is not paid, then we have no hope of a relationship with God. So our acceptance by God is based upon two things that Jesus did. One, his full payment for our sins, past, present, and future, on the cross. But secondly, his perfect life of righteousness. Prior to giving his life on the cross, Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law. Jesus never sinned. In every situation he encountered, he acted like God would act. He thought as God would think. He talked as God would talk. He never omitted anything that should be done, and he never did anything that shouldn't be done. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was righteous. And when you come to Jesus, believing who he is and what he did, that God became man to do that, to live the life that you should have lived and I should have lived, and to die the death that we deserved, that's what he did. When you come to him and you believe that, then that life is applied to you, and that death that he gave for you in payment for your sin is applied to you, both of those. And as a result of that, you're accepted now by God as a child of God, adopted into his family. Wonderful news. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, although Paul teaches this throughout the letters that he wrote in the New Testament, that's not what he's, he's focusing on here. He's saying, yes, the cross is the doorway to our relationship with God, but it's more than that. The focus is not on eternity. The cross guarantees that we'll have an eternal relationship with God, so it begins now and it goes on into eternity, free of sin. But what he's focusing on here is this. He wants us to know that the cross defines our identity and our potential. And it defines our identity and our potential not just in the future, but right here, right now. Notice what the verse says. Christ lives present in me. The life I live in the body, 
that is right now. I live by faith in the Son of God. So this is about change, not not positional change that God has made. Our position has moved from enemies of God in rebellion against Him, abiding under the wrath of God because of our sin. That was our position before God, before we came to Christ. But our position has been radically altered to now a position of a son or daughter in Christ. We've been accepted and adopted into His family, and we've been given a promise of a home forever with Him. All that's true. But that's positional change. And here Paul's talking about experiential change. In my experience, here and now, the life I live, present tense, in the body, I live by faith in the Son, the Son of God. So this is similar to another passage in Scripture. Let me give you the reference. I'll read it for you. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Romans 8, 9 and 10. Romans 8, 9 and 10 says this. You are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And that's a way of explaining what Paul, who wrote Romans 8, but also uh, Galatians 2, of what he's saying in both passages is that Christ indwells us through the person of the Holy Spirit. He gives us a new heart and new power to live out an entirely new potential. So, I want to give you three truths that flow from that, and then three implications that come from those three truths. And that's why you have lines on your sheet for you to take some notes if you care to, right? So here are the three truths that flow from that fact. Christ indwells us. We have an abiding relationship with Christ through God the Holy Spirit living within us every moment of every day. So the first truth is, is this, uh, that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live in the exact words of the, of the verse. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. So this is saying something more than Jesus died for me or that the cross gives me benefits. It's saying, now, now hear this, when Christ died, there's a sense in which he, Paul, and by extension, you and I, who have a relationship with Christ, when Christ died, we died with Him. So when He says, I have been crucified with Christ, when Jesus died physically, Paul and all who have placed their faith in, in Christ died spiritually. And so Paul sees himself as so united to the death of Christ that he can say, I no longer live. Now, in practice, what does that mean? So when we're born, when we're conceived, we are so in sin, according to the Bible. We are under the control and the dominion of sin. But the death of Christ was not a defeat. It was actually a triumph over sin. In Jesus' physical death, he broke the spiritual power and authority that sin had over us. And so... Paul states these words in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified. And the verb that's used there is a verb that's written in a way that points to an action in the past that has continuing results in the present. 
An action in the past that has continuing results in the present. So I have been in the past crucified with, with Christ. So what Christ did on the cross permanently alters who we are now and who we will continue to be. But he goes further than that. He says, I no longer live. The changes inside of a Christian are so fundamental, so basic, that as a human being, he is not the one who who lives any longer. He's still Paul, but because of his death in Christ, he's Paul who's utterly, utterly different at the core of who he is. So that's why he can say this. Now, he can say, I've been crucified. It's a thing that happened in the past, ongoing results. And I no longer live. Now, I have been changed fundamentally at the core, and it's Christ now who lives in me. And we'll see what that looks like in a bit. So, dear friends, when we, we grasp that core change, that radical change within us, we begin to grasp what our potential is now. I mean, if that's really true, and it is, Christ lives in me, then I've got the potential to do all of this stuff differently than I've been doing. I have now the internal spiritual potential to react to the heat of life in opposite ways from what I've been doing perhaps for years. The power of sin has been broken by Jesus. And I have been crucified with him. The power of sin has been broken in my life. So even though I've got patterns and habits and I've got struggles, that has been broken by Jesus and he lives in me and the life I live now in the body, in the present, is no longer just me doing the best I can which is what most people are doing, right? I'm just trying to get along. I'm just trying to identify, tweak here and there. And what Paul is saying in this amazing passage is that we've been crucified with Christ and He is the one now and His power is what lives in us. And so it's a radical change so that we now can begin to grasp what we're really capable of because of, not ourselves, but because of Christ. You are not what you were. You've been changed forever. You no longer live under the weight and dominion of sin. Christ's righteous life and His death fulfilled the law's requirement. It broke the power of sin. So that means, dear friend, you don't have to give in to sin. You have the power not to give in to sin. You can live in new ways in the same circumstances. You can live in new ways in the same circumstances. And what we always say is, I've got to change the circumstances. But what this is saying, what the gospel is saying, is you can live differently even if you're in those same circumstances because when Christ died physically, you died spiritually. And that change then is, is permanent. So that's the first truth stated in the words of the verse. We've been crucified with Christ and, it's, and we no longer live. But then the second one is this. It's the present reality. And that is Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. So it's not enough for Paul to just say that the death of Christ made, made him and us new. He says that when... 
he died, the old Paul was not, now get this, was not replaced with a new and improved version of Paul. But I no longer live. What has replaced the old guy is the new man, and the new man is Jesus. The old man was Adam, our sin nature, the first Adam. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Jesus is referred to as the last Adam. And from the first Adam, you get your sin. And from the last Adam, Jesus, you get this completely new identity. Not just a new and improved version of Ken. But now I've got the identity and the potential of Christ. So it's not that the new Paul is just better at controlling the sin in his heart. Or the new Ken is better at controlling the sin in his heart. I now have Christ living in me. So you should lose the idea, we should lose the idea that our approach towards sin is sin management. What do we, we say? You need to take anger what? Anger management. And, and that's what many Christians, that's as far as we go with the good news. Sin management. If I can just manage it so that my relationships don't all completely fall apart, so that they don't get any worse than they are. <laughs> if I can just manage the situation. Thank God. Listen to this. God's not interested in sin management. He is interested in sin eradication, sin mortification, killing, murdering, slaughtering sin. And when, when Christ died, we died spiritually with him towards sin. The dominion of sin has been broken. And God wants us day by day to be killing sin in our lives. And we have now the potential to do that. Because Christ lives in me. That's the, the second truth, the, the, the present reality. It's not just a new and improved version of me. So the old me has not been replaced with just a better me. The replacement is Christ. The heart is new because Christ lives there. The heart is alive because Christ lives there to give the heart life. And so our hearts can respond in new ways, because it's no longer dominated by sin, but it's liberated by the gracious rule of Christ. So this gives me amazing potential for change. And then here's the third truth. These are the results for daily life. That this results in amazing things for daily life. The verse says, The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here are the present benefits of Christ living in our hearts. We live by a new principle, not the old principle of sin and death, but the new principle of the power and the grace of Christ who resides in us. So this is what he means when he says, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now please hear this, friends. We no longer live based on our assessment of what we possess in our strength, in our character, in our wisdom, whether acquired from our family, our education, our experience. Remember when we started? We said, where do you acquire your idea, evaluation of your own potential? Is it because of your family models and all of that stuff? And what this is, what this is telling you is, no, I don't, I don't get it from, from there. Our potential is in Christ. And when we really believe that, when we live it out, we start to realize our true potential as children of God. And we start to see new fruit. And so the 
right side of that chart. Our hearts are changed. We act upon the potential that that change gives us, and we see new and surprising fruit as our lives mature. So let me give examples. You've got a Christian mom who now speaks with patience to her children when she once yelled at them in anger. When she does that, she's experiencing the reality of Christ living in her. When a husband who in the past would come home tired from work and not offer any service to his wife, but now, even though he's tired, he seeks to serve his family. He's living out the reality of Christ in him. The friend who chooses to remain a friend even though they've been offended. And they're now willing to overlook the offense and maintain the friendship when in the past they would have walked away, not only walked away, but in anger and probably gotten more people involved. They're living out the reality of Christ within them. This is the way radical change looks. And this is the potential that we have because Christ lives in us and he changes us from the inside out. Now, what are the implications of that? Three implications in the eight minutes we have left. Three truths, but here are three implications. If you belong to Christ, you will live with personal integrity. And here's what that means. You'll be willing to examine yourself in the mirror of God's Word. You'll embrace the fact that change occurs in a community project. You'll be willing to be transparent about the fact that you don't have it together. Because Christ has died for your sin, because all of your sin has been forgiven, past, present, and future, because you have this new position in Him, and now, experientially, He lives in you, because all of that is true, you can be honest, you can have integrity you never had before about you. That's what we mean by personal integrity. And one of the things that delights my heart in the work of the church is when I see people who come forward, they come for help, they come to a brother or sister, they come to the staff, whatever, but they come for help, and perhaps for years they've never been willing to do that. But now they're willing to do that because they recognize that I can, I can, I can be honest about who I am. I can be honest about my struggles because my position is absolutely secure. And I've got hope that this can change. Because experientially, Christ lives in me. And because of that confidence on both sides of that, my position and my experience, now the person is willing to come forward and deal with what they've been hiding for years. And our churches are full of people who are hiding. We've got the mask on, and it's, you know, it's okay, yeah, i got my struggles, but doesn't everybody, and you know, all of that. But in terms of really being honest and having integrity about yourself and looking in the mirror of God's Word and saying, these are the five or ten or eighteen things that I struggle with. And these are the ones that I struggle with most. But thanks be to God, Christ lives in me. And I've got the potential now for that to change. And I want more than anything for that to change. And so I'm willing to engage in the change project that is the community of faith. I'm willing to go and get help from brothers and 
and sisters who perhaps are further along in their walk with the Lord than I am. You'll be honest in your struggles. It'll allow you to express godly emotions. Anguish, pain, fear, anxiety, all of it. And so I ask you this question. Are there places where you're putting on a front? Afraid to admit and appropriately express what's going on with you and how you're feeling about what's going on with you. That's the first implication. Let me give you two more because we got to quit. You'll create a climate of grace in your relationships. A climate of grace in your relationships. The reality of the fact that you no longer live, Christ lives in you, the dominion of sin has been broken, you have this new spiritual potential in Him, means now that as you live day to day with others, you will live graciously toward them just as God's grace has been extended to you. So you'll forgive as you've been forgiven. You'll be merciful about the sin of others based on the mercy that you yourself have received from Christ. So are you carrying around bitterness because of stuff people have done to you? The power of that has been broken and you have the potential to, to react to that differently than you have been. And you need to. You'll not only be willing to grant forgiveness, you'll ask for forgiveness. Because now you're freed by Christ from being defensive. The truth is, you can own up to it. You know, one of the most, I mean, this is a trick of Satan, absolutely from the pit of hell. That the community of faith, the church, could become a place where people hide from each other. That, that is, that, that's a beautiful trick. I mean, the guy, you know, you've got you to give it up to the devil, okay? But that you could bring together a community of people who the first premise of the gathering is this, we're all sinners. And yet we spend years acting like we're not. It's amazing. But that's exactly what most of our churches do and most people in our churches do. But you can lose the defensiveness now because the gig is up. God had to come and die for you. That's how bad you are. Right? I mean, if you, if you just were a little off and just need a little tweaking, maybe we could have had a different way to handle this, right? But we had to go this route. God himself has to come and solve the problem of sin because that's how deep it is for you. And we're going to act like everything's okay with me? And so you can create a climate of grace in your relationships, forgiving and seeking to be forgiven because you can be honest about who you are. You'll persevere even when you're tempted to quit because endurance, long-suffering, patience, all of these are on every biblical list of the character traits that flow from a new heart that Christ gives. And then the third implication, lastly, you'll act with courageous grace and constructive truth. Courageous grace and constructive truth. You'll speak with honesty in the pursuit of unity, peace, and blessing. So are there people in your life that God has placed you with that you're called, yes, to be helped by, but also to help? And do you have the courage to speak the truth in love to those people? You'll gladly forgive anyone who, who seeks it. Is there a place where bitterness or vengeance seem more attractive to you than grace and forgiveness? 
Now hear this, you'll be shaped more by the Savior's agenda than by your own selfish desires, the expectations of other people, or the pressures of the situation. Cross-centered living gives you a purpose and direction in all of your actions and in all of your words. You're no longer motivated by your own agenda, but by God's grace, we want to live our lives to reflect what God's doing in us. We want our lives to be part of what He's doing in others' lives, both here and, and beyond. Now, with that, what if you fail? Let me rephrase that. What happens when you fail (laughs) and when I fail? You see those circles at the top of each side, uh, the arrow semicircle? Well, faith and repentance is the continuing walk of the Christian life. So at every step of the way, faith, I I re-believe the gospel. That's what faith is. I remind myself of who I am in Christ. I remind myself of the potential that I have in Christ. I repent, Lord, of not activating the potential that I have because of the gospel. I re-believe, I repent, and then I take steps forward. So, look, this analogy is not perfect uh, like like all, but, but it's close. The Christian life is kind of like this. It's, it's one step back, but then two steps forward. We fail, but then we move forward, and we move forward further, and we mature in Christ. And when we fail, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just, what? To forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so faith and repentance is what we do. And that's, on the, that's the cycle on the fruit side, the good fruit side. On the ill-fruit side, the cycle is continued rationalization, defensiveness, trying to justify my own actions, and we never get move forward. So that's how the cross begins to change us from within, recognizing the new person that we are because Christ lives in us, and as a result, the new potential that we have because the power of sin has been broken. Now, we'll continue looking at that next week. Let's ask the Lord to help us this week, okay? Father, we thank you for this day together, this morning. Thank you for allowing us to look into your word in, from the, your servant Peter to see that in order for us to humble ourselves before you, showing our trust in you as our sovereign and good God, that it means we must cast all of our worry, our anxiety upon you because we absolutely believe that you care for us. And Lord, we thank you that we've been able to be reminded in this hour who we are in Jesus and the potential that we have as a result. I pray, Lord, that you will help me and help these brothers and sisters then to go this week and to remind ourselves each day of who we are in Christ. And Lord, may the implications of that become reality then, even this week in our lives. May we speak to those that you've brought in our circle of influence in in different ways, in Christ-honoring ways. May we seek forgiveness where needed. May we grant forgiveness where sought. May we show the reality of the gospel in the way we pursue our relationships, even this afternoon, even this week. We ask you, Lord, to grant us safety, and we ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.